The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. June 19th, 2020, a Father's Day weekend. We'll have various observances of that later in the show. It's also Juneteenth. Juneteenth, as they say, commemorating General Granger's proclamation in Galveston on this day in 1865 that all slaves in Texas were now free. This year, by executive order from governors in recent days, it's also an official holiday for state employees in New York, Pennsylvania and Virginia, because after three months of uh, lockdown for non-state employees, uh, there's no reason why all these hardworking state employees uh, shouldn't get to enjoy a little bit of one-day lockdown too, is there? It will be bigger than 4th of July by this time next year, the old Juneteenth. For those of us whose provinces remained within the British Empire, slavery is something, as we discussed yesterday at Stein Online, ended not by General Granger, but by... Uh, oh, what was that guy's name? Oh, yeah, George III. In my book, uh, The Undocumented Mark Stein, I cite Smith versus Brown, a court ruling by Lord Chief Justice Holt in 1702, that one may be a villain in England, but not a slave. Mark Stein club member Owen Morgan thinks there are earlier judicial decisions than that, and there are. Cartwright's case. 1569, quote, resolved that England was too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. At the dawn of the Lordship of Ireland, in 1171, there was a slave-freeing decree. Slavery is incompatible, indeed, with one of the great practical pillars and principles of English law, habeas corpus, which we were talking about on this show a couple of weeks back with respect to the lockdown. Uh, But these early judges were, in a sense, arguing from a position of what today would be called white supremacy. Africans own slaves, Arabs own slaves, the Asiatic people own slaves, the Inca people own slaves, and they were all perfectly cool with it because their air was not, quote, too pure, and that's just the way it was and had been throughout human history. When the Royal Navy determined in the 19th century to end slavery worldwide, that was the so-called white man's burden at its heaviest. They decided, in effect, to enforce English purity, uh, in the words of that 1569 decision, on the planet. Slavery as a global fact of life was ended by white men, white Europeans, Caucasians, We should be putting statues up to those guys. But of course, we live in moronic times. The revolution has captured and torched not just Minneapolis and Seattle precinct houses, but apparently the very Supreme Court. You know how this works. America replaced one king in a red robe with nine supreme intergalactic arbiters in black robes. Four are said to be on the left, four are said to be on the right, and one guy gets to be the designated swinger, making and remaking law for 350 million people. 
The left is never swing, so it's usually some Republican-nominated rock-ribbed originalist who has to take the role of swinger. The problem now is that John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch are fighting among themselves to succeed Anthony Kennedy as the designated swinger. Roberts, it has been said since Obamacare, wants to take the court out of politics, so that's why he swings. That sounds all very nice, calm, steady, uncontroversial hand at the tiller. The trouble is that taking the court out of politics looks a lot like putting your thumb on the scale of the culture wars and plunging the court into the heart of politics. There is no social consensus on, say, transgender issues, whether it's putting middle schoolers on puberty blockers or letting self-identified women who are hung like stallions flaunt their wedding tackle in the ladies' locker room. Likewise, Illegal immigration is arguably the most political issue, the one that uh, determined the 2016 election. Everyone agrees that Obama's DACA order was illegal, but Roberts and his fellow wankers have now constitutionalized illegal nonsense, that it's illegal simply to reverse an illegality. They've effectively licensed a president say, in the stupid three-month transition period, to executive order anything he wants, knowing it will take huge effort for his successor to undo. This is why I am not in favour of so-called constitutional courts, because however plainly written the language of a statute is, a so-called constitutional court can torture that plain language into meaning whatever it wants. In this case, that the drafters of the Civil Rights Act had cannily anticipated that six-foot-three athletes with five-o'clock shadow thighs like tugboats and fake knockers stuck on like two bombes surprises on their chests would wish to exercise their human right to compete in the girls under 17 400 metres. Both of this week's rulings are appallingly written, meretricious drivel dressed up as judicial reasoning. But as I wrote many years ago, culture trumps politics and culture trumps law. And we are in a fearful moment. And the most powerful judges in the land do not wish to be seen like that poor schoolteacher in Windsor, Vermont, as being insufficient in revolutionary zeal. Trump now says America needs to re-elect him so that he can put conservative justices on the court to replace the likes of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Neil Gorsuch. Whatever. The march of the morons continues. A statue of George Washington was toppled last night in Portland. Oh, and the Beatles have to come down too. Imagine there's no Beatles. It's easier than you'd think. The Beatles are racist. Why? Because they sang this. Any ladies in my ears and in my eyes. to know. Maybe you can sell it to the Republic of Chop for next time they have a dumpster fire. Penny Lane is an evocation of a lost England. The barber showing photographs. The pretty nurse is selling poppies from a tray. The banker never wears a Mac in the pouring rain. 
But what exactly is white supremacist Paul McCartney celebrating here? Penny Lane in Liverpool is named after a chap called James Penny. Mr. Penny was an 18th century slave trader who, during the British government's inquiry into the slave trade in 1788, was an official spokesperson for the pro-slavery side. Pretty bad, huh? Did I say Penny Lane was named after James Penny? Well, there's in fact no evidence for that, and the lane was on maps long before Mr. Penny came along. But come on! There's a big-time slaver called Penny and a famous lane called Penny. Do the math. Two plus two equals racist. That's why the mob has defaced the sign to rename it Racist Lane. In Racist Lane, there is a slaver show and photographs of every man he's had the pleasure to enslave and all the Beatles stop by to rave. They're all racist. What a twist. I didn't see that one coming. This uh, comparatively trivial example of the great fire of Western civilization actually gets to the heart of the matter. What is Penny Lane famous for? Is it famous for commemorating this bloke called James Penny? Or is it famous because there's a Beatles song about it? Do I really have to answer that? Because... Whoever you're named after, over time you become something in your own right. The Australian state of Victoria was so named in 1851. After 170 years, is it still just a promotional spin-off for the great white queen, or has it become something in its own right, like Victoria, British Columbia? How many people visiting the District of Columbia, think of it as a monument to Christopher Columbus, as opposed to the number of people who think of it as the bloated carcass of a diseased and dysfunctional, putrid, maggot-ridden, pseudo-republic of pox-ridden rent-seekers and deep-state saboteurs. It, too, has become something in its own right. Or is that no longer possible? Because if so, let's take down all the statues of Martin Luther King because he's named after a German guy uh, and they were the cause of both world wars. There are all kinds of contradictions here. On Wednesday, the governing body of Oriel College at Oxford University, quote, expressed their wish to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes. Uh, the statue of Cecil Rhodes stands over the main entrance of a building called the Rhodes Building. Are they renaming the building? And incidentally, the building was built with a £100,000 bequest from Cecil. If Rhodes is sufficiently illegitimate to warrant the removal of his statue, isn't he also sufficiently illegitimate to warrant the removal of his building? And Oriel College disavowing his ill-gotten gains by returning the fruits of his racism with a century's worth of interest to the people of Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, by wiring it into the Swiss bank account of Robert Mugabe's widow. I'm with the butchest guy in the West right now, metrosexual globalist dinky boy Emmanuel Macron. Je vous le dis très clairement ce soir, mes chers compatriotes. La République n'effacera aucune trace ni aucun nom de son histoire. Elle n'oubliera aucune de ses œuvres. 
Elle ne déboulonnera pas de statut. I played that the other day and I love it. My dear compatriots, I want to make it very clear, the Republic will not erase any trace or any name from its history. It will not forget any of its deeds or take down any of its statues. That's my position. That's the line to draw. It all has to stay. Because otherwise you begin negotiating the unraveling of your civilization. Because as I said all those years ago, when a society loses its memory, it descends into dementia, as we see on the streets right now. Final thought from Obama's trusty fundy pajama boy, Ben Rhodes, who I believe is uh, Cecil Rhodes's grandson. So obviously the statue to Ben Rhodes outside the Obama Presidential Library and the Smithsonian Institute of Pajama Boys Uh, both those statues have to be taken down and the ground salted. Anyway, Ben, call me Cecil Jr. Rhodes, says most Americans think it's cruel and un-American to deport dreamers. They're the future. You and your dead enders are the last gasp of America's ugliest past. Uh, he's being perfectly upfront about it. Ben Rhodes actually sees himself as Cecil Rhodes there, as uh, pioneering uh, the conquest of a new uh, land with a superior people that will wipe out whatever was there before him. The old America is dead and it deserves to be dead. All we need now is for Justices Roberts and Gorsuch to write a decision that the Constitution is unconstitutional. It'll be coming any day now. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. We have a copper from the wider Britannic family today because, as Sir John A. Macdonald liked to say, a British subject I was born and a British subject I shall die. Don't know whether Justin Trudeau ever says that. But it's not been a great week for the old banana boat singer. His pitch to the United Nations General Assembly that it was a time to put a mammy singer on the UN Security Council flopped out big time. And uh, when the moment came to tally his bananas, he had rather few votes than Stephen Harper did a decade back. Poor old Justin worked that crowd like Jolson down on one knee singing, Rock am I a mammy? Dixie Melody. But it uh, it turns out those uh, UN guys are not as easy to please as Rosie Barton and her CBC colleagues. Rosie, you are my posy. Works every works every time when Justin does that. And fresh from that humiliation, there were further indignities. Oh, mammy! Regional police is uh, investigating an act of vandalism here at uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Park uh, here in the city of Vaughan. This is just uh, west of the Promenade Mall. And uh, earlier this afternoon around the lunch hour, a citizen called saying that a statue of uh, the former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau uh, was in fact uh, damaged. Somebody's uh, spray painted uh, the face of, uh, of the former Prime Minister. And uh, unfortunately, it is a fact of vandalism. And in this, uh, these times, I'm not sure what that uh, that accomplishes. Um, the city of Vaughan is on their way here now to uh, repair crews to uh, to hopefully 
repair the damage. Investigators at uh, our detective branch in number four district would greatly appreciate a call. That's Sergeant Dave Mitchell of the York Regional Police, just north of Toronto, who swung into action after a report came in that the face of Pierre Trudeau's statue had been painted black uh, so that he'll look more like his son in the group photograph. Many listeners submitted Sergeant Mitchell's name for Wanker Copper, and to be honest, I thought that was a bit hard. The board chap sounds a bit like he's just going through the motions, uh, like he was ordered to the park just as he was heading off to an early lunch. Uh, Nevertheless, nevertheless, for the last two or three years, whenever I've driven by the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, in uh, Montreal, in Place du Canada, Dominion Square. It's been defaced and vandalized, usually sprayed with red paint to show how blood-drenched Sir John is. And I notice no one seems in too much of a hurry to keep that statue in pristine condition, so the urgency about restoring Monsieur Trudeau to his non-minstrel hue is at odds with the lethargy toward MacDonald and others. Then a reporter asked the sergeant a question. Is it possible that this could be considered a hate crime at all? Uh, a hate crime, or it's it's possible, uh, the motivation behind it. Um, th- this type of thing doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, and again, that's that's why it's a crime. It's uh, it's Besides hate crime, it's just disrespectful to everybody. Okay, so at a time when statues are being vandalized, torn down and tossed in the river all over the world, it's, quote, disrespectful to paint blackface on a man whose son wore blackface and black arms and black legs and black torso and I'll bet you black bottom uh, as well on multiple occasions into early middle age and for all we know still does it today. Why? Why is it disrespectful to trash Trudeau's statue but legitimate to trash everybody else's? And if it's a hate crime... Uh, Who exactly is being targeted? Pierre Trudeau? He's been dead for two decades. People who like to dress up in blackface, are they a protected class now? You can get away with being a mammy singer if you're a woke mammy singer like Justin and Governor Northam and Jimmy Fallon and you've worn blackface actually in our time. But if you wore blackface a century ago, like those two English musical performers I mentioned the other day, then some vicious queen of a Church of England vicar will have your gravestones covered up and threaten to disinter you. This is a bad faith revolution, a bad faith revolution of the most pathetic humbugs and hypocrites. I have no idea who blackface Trudeau or why, but it's an excellent jest that he fully deserves. And if it's truly, quote, disrespectful, then all it means is that Pierre is being treated as crappily as every other dead white male. And that's a good thing, because if this is the bonfire of our civilization, then it all has to go. Step aside, Sergeant Mitchell. Jazz, Frank Sinatra, good old-fashioned rock and roll. Fill your ears with all sorts of music curated by Mark Stein himself at Stein Online. Music plays on at Stein Online through exclusive Mark Stein show performances. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. Biographies of great performers and songwriters and Mark's On the Town audio specials. Are we really happy with this lonely game we play? 
Chuck Berry to Cole Porter, Ted Nugent to Johnny Mercer. New specials added regularly. Put some records on by heading over to www.steinonline.com music. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. A Father's Day poem, to my taste, should be about something specific, not just generalities about dear old dad, which can descend very easily into sorbsister stuff. Two of my favourites are Wordsworth's About a Father on a Country Walk with a Five-Year-Old Son and this one by Theodore Retke about a waltz one night in the kitchen. Not long after Retke's death, uh, James Dickey, uh, America's Poet Laureate, and the fellow who wrote Deliverance, which you will surely know, at least in film form, uh, James Dickey called him the greatest poet this country has yet produced. Retke's admirers include W.H. Auden and Camille Paglia, whose poetry anthology includes more pieces by Retke than by any other 20th century poet. This one divides the critics... Some see it as a comic romp of persistent love. Others think it's a scene of terror. I think it's both. And if you study Retke's early drafts, you'll see he worked hard at keeping that balance. Uh, But to quote James Dickey again, Theodore Retke sees and feels the aspects of life which are compelling to him. And this compelling aspect is rooted in memories of his own father. Otto Retke was a German who emigrated with his brother to Saginaw, Michigan, where they became market gardeners who owned uh, 25 acres of greenhouse. But uh, when Theodore was just 14, his father died of cancer and his uncle committed suicide. Sometimes when you lose a parent young, the few memories you have blaze ever more vividly. And Otto is clearly the inspiration for this poem. It's a memory of a waltz. And, uh, in fact, it's written in three-quarter time. But it's not really uh, a waltz that waltzes, because, in fact, it's a flawed, boozy hulk staggering around the kitchen uh, with his wife aghast as saucepans shake and fall. But the memory means something to the son all these years later. The roughness, the stickiness, the booziness, the clumsiness. It's a vivid and, in a certain sense, an appealing memory of a father no longer there. Written in 1941 by Theodore Retke, My Papa's Waltz. The whiskey on your breath could make a small boy dizzy. But I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. We romped until the pan slid from the kitchen shelf. My mother's countenance could not unfrown itself. The hand that held my wrist was battered on one knuckle. At every step you missed, my right ear scraped a buckle. You beat time on my head with a palm caked hard by dirt. Then waltz me off to bed, still clinging to your shirt. A poem from me to you this Father's Day weekend by Theodore Retke, my Popper's Waltz.
Mark's mailbox is on the air. David Taylor, a first month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from California, writes, Mark, I don't think your rendering of the Antifa Black Lives Matter cultural rot was too rancid last time round. We need more shouting about it, hopefully from President Trump. But that desire of mine is rapidly fading. Trump, already late to the bonfire, has been twitching between lightly cowing to BLM scripture and then making loud banging noises about some aspects of Antifa and its herd of zombies. What America needed was Trump to lead with a clear articulation of the realities of the George Floyd death, along with a terse condemnation of the anarchistic rhetoric and violence that characterize the, quote, peaceful protests, and onward to the spiritual blitzkrieg leveled upon America's cultural heritage, and then to the woke corporate hacks. But what we got was squeamish, nervous chattering. When you've lost Gone with the Wind and police precincts, and syrup bottles, you've lost. I'll vote for Trump in November, but his charm has been dashed. It was a time for a worthy battle. Well, there are two theories on November, David. One is that Trump has lost these last four months uh, several key elements of his 2016 coalition, old people, for example, suburban women. Another is that there's a vast silent majority that is disgusted uh, by what's been going on in recent weeks and will sweep him to a landslide victory. And the only reason every single poll shows Biden widening his margin is because with mobs in the street ready to destroy your livelihood over an insufficiently enthusiastic tweet, people are too fearful to tell pollsters that they're voting for Trump. Maybe. On the other hand, if they're that fearful, they may be too fearful actually to vote for him. Uh, if Joe Biden wins, the GOP will also lose the Senate. And those guys won't be dithering like the Republicans did during Trump's first two years. They won't be building a leisurely mile of new border wall every year and saying, relax, as long as we retain power for the next 1,930 years, we'll finish it. When the Dems want something, Obamacare, transgender, bathrooms, total cultural revolution, they do it in nothing flat, secure in the knowledge that Republicans never muster the will to reverse it. But setting aside polls and politics, this is an existential moment. And I want a guy who defends our civilization, the civilization that built the modern world in big picture terms that grasp the stakes, that says we have an heroic civilizational narrative that not only is no cause for shame, but in fact is something uh, for our uh, psychologically unhealthy youth to take pride in. I want someone, in other words, as butch as Macron. That's all I'm asking for. Right now, Western civilization is dying on America's watch and assuming that there'll be anyone around to write history, they will be merciless about that. Mark Stein's Last Call. (laughs) 
I think most of my fellow columnists would agree that the hardest columns to write are the seasonal ones for those big holidays that roll around every year from Easter to Christmas, Valentine's Day to New Year's Eve. It's all been said before and sometimes by you yourself in your very first Thanksgiving or St. Patrick's Day column. Many years ago in New Hampshire, I was agonizing over one such seasonal torment, and while prowling the room in search of inspiration, uh, I chanced uh, to alight on my local church newsletter, and their columnist, Mrs. Piper, had written a rather good column. And I noticed as the months went by and Memorial Day turned to Old Home Day and Mud Season to Deer Season, that she was very reliable in that respect. She was in her 80s at that point, still driving the dirt roads in a rusty pickup and still riding her favourite horses in the uh, 4th of July and Old Home Day parades. One Sunday morning in church, I said how much I enjoyed her newsletter pieces, and we became fast friends, and I did the eulogy at her funeral, which is a long time ago now. This Father's Day column is a particular favourite of mine. Her dad ran away from home as a child fleeing a horrible situation and wound up at a local farm, married a local girl and had five daughters. And then their mother died and their father found himself doing double duty as both parents. And in difficult circumstances, he gave them the childhood he himself had never known. Four of the girls married into some of the oldest families in town, still living at the homesteads their forebears had built in the New Hampshire wilderness in the 1760s and 1770s. And the fifth, somewhat improbably, left town to work for the State Department and travel the world. The daughter of a man whose travels were confined to the ritual each June of driving his cattle from his farm down by the river four miles uphill uh, to their high summer pasture. This is the story of my friend Vivian Piper's father, but Vivian had the ability to write about her own life and yet write for everyone, to be utterly personal and yet say something universal. I think of this man often. Each season, the planting of spring, the haying, the time of growth, the birth of farm animals and all that goes with nature. If I listen, even in June, I can hear the frozen snow squeak under his old barn boots as he walked to the barn to milk, so many years ago on bitter cold winter mornings. I am in my middle seventies, and it is heartwarming to remember these things about this father, who was also my mother. He was proud of his five daughters. Granted, he did treat some of us as boys on the farm, but that seemed to fit in very well with my way of thinking. How it was handled over time did not make me think any less of my femininity. He told me and my sister Edna, who was my best friend, the importance of keeping our hair combed and neat. This was something special for girls that boys didn't have. I don't think at that time my father realised that boys could also grow long hair. He told me I had the best of two worlds. I was a girl, and I could do almost anything that any boy my size could do, but it was important for me to remember I was a girl. 
This good information I forgot time and again. He explained menstruation to me as he knew about it and passed it off as just part of growing up and being a girl becoming a woman, which I didn't fancy very much. He taught me to accept myself as I was and to be proud of this and happy about it. When he seemed to feel so good about you, how could you as his daughter feel otherwise? Such things as the colour of your hair and eyes, whatever they were, didn't matter. It was the smile you put on your face that counted. Mother died when I was very young, and she was a shadowy figure in my mind. But my sister Edna, so he said, looked just like our mother. To two little girls it was something to hold on to, and prove true with the passage of time. There were his five daughters' achievements, four H projects, prize speaking. He backed us up as children in the grade school. Then we went on to bigger learning things in life, secretary work, nursing, teaching, and learning to be good homemakers. This was important. My father's childhood was lost. He went only to the second grade, and when he was ten years old, he ran away from a sad situation. He came to John King's farm. He could not read or write, but he could outfigure any man with a pencil and paper. He was startled one time when the bank credited me with $3,200, when in fact I only had saved $32. Wonder what he would have thought of a computer virus. Nevertheless, education was very important for his daughters, and that meant going to high school, where we each had to find work in homes and pay our way. This we all did. I rather think to Dad's credit. My father wasn't a religious man in the sense that he took part in church service, but he believed in his town, and as a part of this town and his neighbourhood, it was his duty to keep his roadsides mowed and clean and not let useless brush grow up. He was truly a good neighbour when a helping hand was needed, and he felt it wouldn't hurt us girls to go to Sunday school, so we did. When my father was in his seventies, he had a heart attack, and my sister Dorothy cared for him in her home. While he was getting better, my sister provided first-grade reading books, and during that time he learned to read, and he was delighted. After that, letters could be typed to him, and to his pleasure he could read them. More than once he commented on this wonderful thing to be able to read. Courage in this man was an example I admired greatly, the morning we all stood around and looked at the smoking remains of his farm buildings, buildings he had owned for over 50 years, where 40 head of cattle had burned the night before. Grant Bolch, a good neighbour, asked, "'What are you going to do now, Frank? It's all gone.' My father turned and faced this good farmer and friend and said, you know, Grant, it is all here in my mind and always will be. I have that. And you see that big cornerstone in the foundation of the old barn? Well, that's where I'm going to start and build a new one. And he did build another barn. His examples of patience, his love for his animals and concern for their welfare showed his belief that these beasts were a part of a much larger plan. Until the last, my father set the example of living life to the fullest. He travelled the world over, following where my sister Mildred was in the State Department. He went to all the family gatherings and picnics my sister Lillian planned. He cared about his grandchildren, 
and I kind of think those who got to know him loved him. His person with me as a child made all the difference in my life. As an adult today, I don't look at a glorious field of corn or witness a slow coming down rain or a pretty little girl all dressed up without thinking, gee, Dad would like that. Remarkable, Father, I think so. But then, on the other hand, if all of you who read this were to sit down and write about your father, I bet there isn't enough paper for the church newsletter to get it all in. My late friend Vivian Piper and her Father's Day column for a New Hampshire church newsletter three decades ago. When your father's alive, you think of him in the here and now, a family dinner that's got a bit of a sense of weary obligation about it, the emerging health issues and the phone calls because he's fallen or he's not taking his pills. When he's gone, you're a child again, and he's a man in full. Uh, lately, I've found myself having an occasional dream about walking down the street with my dad one day when I was about seven years old and I was accompanying him on his day's business rounds in the city. It's a very pleasant memory. Uh, so here's Vera Lynn uh, with her own childhood reminiscence in song. And this is, in fact, the very first solo Dame Vera ever made. In 1936, a song based on a reassuringly cosy bit of English home counties vernacular that I believe dates back to the 1860s, but reached its uh, apogee in the 1920s and 30s, when for little oval teenies going upstairs at the end of the day was a trip up the wooden hill to Bedfordshire. Last night I dreamt about the place where I was born The village school, the winding lane The fields of waving corn Gee, that dream brought memories to me my childhood days in fancy I could see When the sun had gone to rest and I was tired of play Dad would put me on his back and then to me he'd say Up the wooden hill to bed for cheer Heading for the land of dreams When I look back to those happy childhood days Like yesterday, it seems It was grand, my mother held my hand Daddy was the old Gigi The old wooden hill was the old wooden stair and Bedfordshire cot where I knelt to say my prayer climbing up the wooden hill to Bedfordshire they were happy happy days for me 
A very young Vera Lynn with her famously clear enunciation, but not quite yet the tonal quality that three or four years later would make her the force's sweetheart for the duration and forever after. Dame Vera died on Thursday at the age of 103. That very English song was composed by Reg Connolly, whose catalogue includes If I Had You and Try a Little Tenderness. The words are by Clifford Gray, who wrote If You Were the Only Girl in the World, the Tommy's favourite of the Great War, and Spread a Little Happiness, which was a big hit for Sting in the 80s. Uh, And he spent some time in America, where he wrote with all the great American composers, Jerome Kern, Sigmund Romberg, George Gershwin. I knew Clifford Gray's daughter Dorothy very well. She used to get me to cash her dad's American royalty checks when I was in New York. Uh, and then bring the money over when I was next in the UK. I expect that, like everything else these days, that's totally illegal now. But as a young man, I always enjoyed an electric frisson, having an attaché case full of money between my calves when I was sitting at the counter at Hamburger Heaven on whatever cross street in Manhattan that was. Uh, Dorothy, like uh, Vivian, loved her dad. He died not that old, 54, early in the Second World War, presenting a concert party for the troops in Ipswich in 1941. The Germans bombed the town that night very heavily. The bombs missed him, but all the smoke brought on an asthma attack. We will have a rather more famous offering by Vera Lynn by way of tribute for our Sunday song selection, and I'll share a couple of personal memories of her. And don't forget Kathy Shadle with her Saturday movie date right here at Stein Online. I was always amazed at how many top-notch singers my dear old dad had seen in concert. Frankie Lane at the Royal Theatre in Dublin, Elvis Presley at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, but his all-time favourite singer was Al Jolson, and for me, Al Jolson singing happy songs with Morris Stoloff's orchestra is a happy sound of my childhood, and I can always hear my father singing along. Happy songs that pick you up, that no one seems to write anymore. Have a wonderful Father's Day weekend. Stay safe, stay free, and if there's a red, red robin, bob, bob, bobbin in your neighbourhood, make the most of it, because, boy... We sure could use him now. I heard a robin this morning. I'm feeling happy today. Gonna pack my cares in a whistle. Gonna blow them all away. What if I've been unlucky? Really, I ain't got a thing. There's a time I always feel happy. As happy as a king. When the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along, along, there'll be no more sobbing when he stops robbing his old sweet song. Oh, wake up, wake up, you sleepyhead. Get up, get up, get out of bed. Cheer up, cheer up, the sun is red. Live, love, laugh and be happy. What if I've been blue? Now I'm walking through fields of flowers. Rain may glisten, but still I listen for hours and hours. I'm just a kid again, doing what I did again, singing a song. 
When the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. When the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along, along, there'll be no more sobbing when he starts throbbing his old sweet song. Oh, wake up, wake up, you sleepyhead. Get up, get up, get out of bed. Cheer up, cheer up, the sun is red. Live, love, laugh and be happy. What if I've been blue? Now I'm walking through fields of flowers. Rain may glisten, but still I listen for hours and hours. I'm just a kid again, doing what I did again, singing a song. When the red, red robin starts bob, bob, bobbing along. All rights reserved.